This is Ramdas here, and now I'm Raghu Marcus, your host, and a pretty interesting talk that we're presenting today, and I'll give you a little bit of an idea about that in a minute. I want to just mention that we have coming up a free online retreat. It's part of our spring retreat in Maui program, and we stream um, some of the content on, it'll be what, Friday, May 3rd through Sunday, May 5th. And go to ramdas.org and right at the top banner, you'll be able to click and find out everything about it. It's around the wisdom of emptiness and love. So just go there and click through and just put your email in and you're there. You'll be there. You'll get a, you'll get an announcement in the, in your email next week to give you the links. Okay. So that's a online spring retreat from love serve. Remember foundation. Uh, one, uh, another shout out here for 1440.org, 1440 Multiversity, and our friend Dan Siegel, who I did a podcast with on Mind Rolling, that if you haven't checked that out on Mind Rolling, please do. Dan is uh, a real awareness, mindfulness expert and a psychiatrist and does some really fantastic work. And if you're in the neighborhood, 1440 is in California right uh, in Santa Cruz. Check it out, May 17th. And then something else, I was just scrolling through 1440.org, which you can do and find out all of their uh, offerings. And I saw something about intuition that's a favorite burgeoning, how do you like that word, subject of mine. Uh, Intuition, I think that... uh, we're going to be doing some stuff, uh, creating some content through our Ramdas library, media library, around intuition. He has spoken of it quite a bit. And uh, a woman by the name of Wendy DeRosa uh, is going to be also doing a 1440 Multiversity Weekend uh, sometime later in May. Go to 1440.org and check it out, Okay. Yeah, we love 1440. I can't tell you how many people that I have found for mind-rolling through them that have been illuminating. Okay, here's another illuminating thing. So I asked Nathan, who's our curates over at the Ramdas Media Library, Nathan, I'm so overwhelmed. Please just find me a talk that I can present on the podcast on the Ram Dass podcast. He said, oh yeah, no problem. And he sends it over to me. He said, he characterizes it a little bit by saying, well, it's got come some heavy subjects. It's a Q&A from Omega in 1992 in July. I said, okay, well, that sounds great. Okay, folks, here's what it is. And I'm so sorry in our world that it's got so much suffering in it these days. Not that it's vastly changed from ancient times, but we seem to be in quite a critical era. And uh, this is not piling on, okay? And in fact, Ramdas has a lot of great stuff uh, that I think can help everybody. But here it is, subject matter. We start with abortion, okay? And then it goes to death, then uh, suicide. Then, and he's got a, v- a visit to concentration camp. And is war ever justifiable? I mean, and then that ends the coup de grace is near death experience. Okay, so for those of you that absolutely don't want, uh, you can't take one more second. <laughs> <laughs> he maybe shine this on, but in reality, of course, it's Ramdas, and he takes it all and transforms it. Like even uh, around abortion, for instance, which is right a hot button topic. 
certainly in this country. Uh, but, you know, he doesn't do any black and white things, should or shouldn't. He talks about the karmic predicament of the entities that are involved and how it's a very difficult thing because our attachment to both birth and death it prevents us, which means pushing away and fear and all of that. It prevents us from hearing the truth of of what our dharma should be. You know, we just can't get free of judgment and our projections and our fears and so on. Um, and he, so he, as he is with everything, there's a real center point of wise reflection that even beyond the actual uh, subject of abortion can really uh, connect us in, in ways to be a little bit more skillful uh, than we normally are in all parts of our life. If finding your way to hear into the wisdom of the universe is, is extraordinarily important on the path. And we get deeply trapped, he says, in our models and our mind, minds of how the universe ought to be. Uh, but, uh, you know, we just keep getting blinded every moment. Uh, and how it is, is something that we don't really, we, we, we just shy away from it because of our desire systems and because of our fear, we're pushing and pulling at things. So that's what he says. That's what colliding the mind's all about, extricating ourselves from the tyranny of our thoughts. Ah. So as I said, you know, he's talking about war. That, that was an interesting thing. Did you hear him talk about that? Is there such a thing as dharmic war? Well, what about the Gita? You know, that's a whole other thing. And then uh, his visit to a concentration camp to Dachau, um, where, as he said, uh, the people who went there were, they were brought very close to the edge of the mystery of, of how could this possibly happen in, in the modern era and uh, he talks about both Victor Frankl and uh, Eli uh, Weitzel uh, and what they have to say about it. We should get those books. Uh, we'll have those books uh, in the show notes so you can be aware and we'll link them up. Um, and, yeah, the pertinent quote for for this kind of entering, you know, you're choosing to, to bring yourself into a moment by going to such a place, to the concentration camp. And, and Bernie Glassman, who died recently, Roshi Bernie, he led groups over there uh, every year for many, many, many years. And uh, it was a real practice. Uh, he, he, he was an amazing being. If you don't know Bernie, um, check him out. We should put a link to Bernie up uh, on the page as well. Um, Beyond the unbearable, here we still are. What else? Um, we should feel comfortable that the process is happening to us. So this is around, in my mind, around trust uh, and another favorite subject of mine as those of you who listen to Mind Rolling know, uh, we, we start to be able to see our lives from a perspective that isn't embedded in, in belief in our thoughts and our stories. And then once we, we get that spacious quality so that we are not so uh, reactive to absolutely everything that happens in our lives, uh, then we can get a sense of of trust in the process. If he says, feel comfortable. And I think trust is what makes us feel comfortable. It's okay. Some of it's really unpleasant, but it's okay. Okay. We can get through it, you know, and back to 
what he just said before in terms of that tremendous suffering, beyond the unbearable, here we still are. And that, to me, is about trust, that it is all happening exactly as it should in our lives so that we can grow to become free. And connecting with that inner guru, of course, is, is key for this. And again, as Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji told us back then, the guru is not external. So we can connect with that inner truth that guides us. Um, truth, that's a good segue, right? Truth and the spirit are intimately linked. This is, that's a good thing to ponder. Right? That, that's a practice too, by the way. You know, we talk about getting up in the, I mean, get up in the morning, we do our little sitting meditation, perhaps a little chanting, perhaps a prayer, uh, perhaps a reading. But you know what's good too? Is you, you take something, like we do those, we do send out um, wonderful words of wisdom uh, to those of you who have the Ramdas app. We, every morning, nine o'clock in the morning, you get your words of wisdom from many different traditions and different teachers and so on. Those are, I do that. At the end of my set sitting session, I'll pick that up. And contemplation is a, a wonderful practice, actually. So let's contemplate truth and the spirit and how they are intimately linked. Anybody has any ideas, by the way, just write into uh, info at ramdas.org or write through the app or uh, there's so many ways to do it. Okay, then he moves on to death and suicide. I mean, boy, oh boy. Uh, and these are questions, particular, very specific questions from people. And I think many of, uh, many of us out there listening including me who listened to this to made some notes to get an idea of what it was, uh, very much appreciated different aspects of what he was saying to these people that made sense to me and reflected for me in other ways. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, again, it's Ramdas, and there's so much uh, profundity to his wise words. I have to tell him that. He'll like that. Uh, anyhow, this thing ends, you know, uh, so there's stuff around and, you know, near-death experience, but there's also, in terms of the suicide part, he tells the story of this kid. This is a famous story, but this is told, there's parts of this story that I never heard before, which happens with Ramdas. He, sometimes he'll, he'll really... Uh, it'll be embellished in, in ways that he might have forgotten when he told the story in a previous uh, talk or whatever. But it's the story of a kid who came to him to learn yoga, a young man, and uh, Ramdas taught him yoga. And then he, he was so great, he, Ramdas said, he surpassed me. And then he, he would come visit Ramdas every month. Anyhow, it's a great story. And he eventually died um, doing practice and also psychedelics. And then um, Ramdas eventually, when he went back to India the second time, when we went back with him, uh, this came up with Maharaji in a really unusual way. He had a picture of the kid and it fell out of his diary or something. Um, and, and it's really, really amazing. Uh, because of Ramdas's distrust, uh, distrust, he distrusted the way uh, that uh, his mother told him how this kid left, and he he didn't trust it, and uh, how Maharaji turned that around. So, uh, fantastic story. Many of you may have heard of the story if you're if you've listened to a, a lot of Ramdas talks, uh, but listen, I listened again and it was like hearing it for the first time. It was really amazing. So there you go. Enough. I will uh, see you all next week on, uh, well, not really next week. If it's next week, you got to go to Mind Rolling, which comes out more often than Ramdas. And, uh, and all of the different offerings 
uh, on Be Here Now Network. We have a new gal named Francesca who's joining us and doing podcasts. She's amazing. Uh, check it out, BeHereNowNetwork.com. We'll see you next time on Ramdas Here and Now. When I comment about abortion, it was an interesting moment when uh, I asked that question of uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. And he said, um, he said, whether abortion happens or not, he said, is very much a function of the karmic predicament of the three entities involved. And it's somehow the result of the interaction of that. Now, that's not looking at it from a psychological level. That's looking at it from a karmic, spiritual, a soul level. From, a, from the individual entities level, um, my guru said something that I really heard. It resonated in some deep way with me. He said, nobody dies a minute too soon or a minute too late. And I thought about a fetus. And then I thought about what kind of work an entity could have in which it would just go into a fetus and then stop before it came into a birth. And I realized that for us who are so attached to birth, we can't hear the answer because we're, our attachment blinds us to hearing it free of judgment. It's like the issue of somebody dying young. It's hard for us to hear it because we are so attached to life. And the question is whether we hear clearly what the greater design might be, whether we have a quietness sufficient to hear that uh, being aborting could be have finished whatever work it had at that moment in the same way that a virus could or a rock could or a tree could or something like that. Now, at one level, this all sounds like gross rationalization. But at another level, it's just a very subtle predicament of finding your way to hear into the wisdom of the universe. And it says, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. And I think the whole issue of birth and death is clouded in mystery, which we have not yet freed from the projections that come out of our own desires and our own fears so that it's really hard to hear the whole issue. So I have much more of a watching the unfolding. If somebody comes to me and says, talks about whether they should have an abortion or not, what I will say is that I've noticed that as people become more conscious, they are less manipulative of the universe in order to bring about what they think they need. And the fact that this person didn't expect to have a baby and now has is pregnant. New existential moment, ah so. And the ability to let go of models and be fully with this moment and then ah. Instead of saying a moment ago I didn't plan for you, therefore you're interfering with my model of who I, how I think it should be and therefore you must go. And I think one of the things that we get deeply trapped in is our models in our mind of how the universe ought to be that keep blinding us from hearing each moment how it is. And that's part of what the quieting of the mind and the extricating ourselves from thought is about. So what I find is that a lot of people who hadn't planned to have a baby, and in the older days when their egos were stronger, they would have said, this is not an appropriate thing in my mind. They open and they say, well, new existential moment, ah, so. And something else happens. I mean, I wouldn't ever feel that there is a rule book in which every human being uh, follows, that there is a rule that everybody should follow. I can't even imagine it in that situation. And I think that the, each human heart has to trust its own intuitive. Because that's the way a being, a mother would get an intuitive sense that this being doesn't even want to be born. I mean, that's at the level Trungpa was talking about it. 
It is that kind of conspiracy of awareness that's at the level of dolphins. It's not at the level of, of, of intellectual analytic decisions of when birth occurs and all of that. That isn't the level of it at all. Is that dealing with your question? He's asking, is war ever justifiable? And I wish at this moment that I were a wiser human being and that I really understood that fully. In my heart of hearts, I hear Gandhi saying it's never justifiable. And just open your neck and, and then at another level, I can see that there can be dharmic war. That there can be the use of force in order to that is rooted in truth, but I think it's rare indeed. I think it's rare indeed. And certainly none of the conflicts we've dealt with since Second World War are very clean or clear con because there's so much other stuff going on. And even the Second World War was pretty complicated. Um, I think that we have, because we have lost statesmanship and diplomacy into politics that we have lost an avenue that would avert war because great states people from different cultures don't meet together as elders to share a full appreciation of it all they are only politicians in the sense that they represent separate interests and I feel that that is where the pain lies, is that the other avenues of dealing with violence and, and uh, you know, a kind of aggressive, greedy behavior, uh, we've cut them off. We haven't cultivated them. We haven't cultivated the, the ways of using dialogue to do that process. So, um, I don't feel I have a yes or no question to answer to that. I don't feel I can stand fully with Gandhi on this. I don't think that um, that if I saw somebody um, uh, hurting or killing somebody else, and the only way I could stop that person was by killing them, I don't know that I wouldn't do that. I don't know that I wouldn't do that. Yeah, what happens to the non-attachment? I think that that could be done out of a complete place of non-attachment. I think in non-attachment doesn't mean you don't act. It means you act out of the gestalt of the situation. You act out of the totality. And out of it comes a response that is bringing the whole thing into some uh, deeper harmony. And I see that could be any particular action. I don't think the action itself, when I say I don't think I could watch that without acting, at the level of action, I think that's what I as a human being would be called upon to do. The other part of me, I think, would see the predicament. I found myself in situations where another part of me certainly doesn't see any reason to do it, but I've just got to do it. I've just got to do it because it's my part. It's, it's, it's appropriate in that situation. I think there can be appropriate action without attachment. Um, she's asking me about my visit to Dachau concentration camp last year. Well, I think whether Jew or non-Jew, the realization of the immensity of the Holocaust in terms of the human condition um, has brought many people so close to the edge of the mystery of is there a good God or what is the universe about? And I felt that I was drawn to Dachau because I felt that that scene and the standing there in the presence of those souls that had died there and the people who had inflicted that kind of cruelty on fellow human beings, just being there would um, 
take me deeper into the mystery of what that is about. And then as a Jew, I realized that part of why I haven't been able to be to fully acknowledge the incarnational aspect of being Jewish was because of my fear of the pain of the horror of the predicament of the Jews. And I mean, if you read Elie Wiesel's book, Night, for example, you just be aware of the 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 spiritual edge that beings were taken to in that situation. And when I went there and walked through the bunkhouses and walked down the line and thought about their lives and I was choking, I couldn't even breathe out of the 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 horror of what humans could do to one another. And then I came to the um, these three chapels at the end. One was a Protestant, one was a Catholic, and one was a Jewish chapel. And I came up to the Jewish chapel, which was a long brick like a tunnel. And in the front end, it was smaller in the front end than in the back end. It went up in the back. And when you looked down, it was very dark inside, and there was a, um, an iron grill in front that was shaped like barbed wire. It had barbs coming out, and you put your fingers on it, and you looked in. You didn't go in. Nobody went in. You just looked in. And you looked down this long, dark tunnel, and it was very dark, and then your eyes were drawn down to the end where... There was a, a change in the color of the stones. So your eyes went up, and then at the top, there was this tiny little hole of light. And your eyes went down through this and up to that light. And it was something about faith and pain and darkness, and there were a whole quality, a set of qualities that I went through. And I started to think about what my life has been like and how what it would have been like had I been living in one of those cities where suddenly I had to wear a thing on my shirt because I was a Jew and then later on I was told I couldn't live here but I'd have to live there and then later on I was brought into a square and then later I was put into a truck and then I was taken somewhere and I thought about people's lives and what they tried to hold and then lost and I just experienced there but for, because I came from my family just a couple of generations are Polish and Russian and Litvaks and, and uh, I, you know, I'm, that's it. That's, those are, those are my relatives. They're my family. And, uh, and I, I mean, the experience is burned into me burned into me, just walking those paths and sitting there and walking into the ovens and seeing the showers. And and the pictures in the museum of the tattooed arms. And the whole way of, of human spirit and human degradation and the meaning of moments of existence. And it was very profound. I, I, I treasure it. I treasure it. And at the same moment, at the same moment, there is a lot of space in me. I don't end up caught in it. I just, it's like the fullness, it's like your heart, you can keep your emotional heart open so that it's breaking moment after moment after moment. And beyond the unbearable, here we still are. Here we still are. And that's part of it, that you, as you start to continue on the spiritual path, you're able to look more directly at the immensity of the human suffering, of, the, of all, not just human, animals and earth and all of it, without blinking, without turning away, without being frightened of it. And you, the thing that frightens you about pain is that your heart breaks so and it hurts so. And you can get so that it's constantly hurting and constantly breaking. And behind it and within it is joy. 
And it's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary. And in that way, I was asking the people who had been through that process at Dachau to give me the transmission to allow me to be a holder of their pain to go on with my life as a statement of theirs, just like I feel with the women in Guatemala. Being able to experience grief without getting lost in it. I don't think we should spend our lives trying not to have emotions for fear we're going to get lost in them. I think it's better to, the fact that you are here in this gathering means that something has started to happen to you in the sense of awakening out of the thickness of a single plane of reality. And I think that you are justified in having some faith in the fact that that process is happening to you. And that when situations arise for grief, like your brother's illness and his imminent death, I think that you should let yourself feel whatever you feel and just ride with it and then realize that at some point you'll come up for air because this, this, you're asking this question of me and here we are. Do you hear that? I think that the attempt to be strong is a kind of strength that isn't coming out of the strength of being rooted in the depth of, of the truth of the matter. And I think it's, it's, our culture reinforces strong meaning stiff upper lip. And I don't think that's strength. I think that's social coercion in a certain kind of a way. So, I mean, I encourage people to cry and rage and, you know, scream and, and express anger. And when you're with uh, your brother, express the unfairness and the anger. And, because the most important thing you can share with somebody that is going through a transition out of their body is truth. And I don't think you can lay up truth on somebody who doesn't want to hear it. But you can listen in to hear how close that person will come to wanting to share truth with you and then be as truthful as you can. I mean, people come and they say, I don't know how to be with somebody that's dying. Can you give me a book to read? And, and the horror of somebody coming to you to sit down, you know, and you say this just a minute and you look up the response. People say, would you train me in how to work with a dying? And then you get a credential saying Ramdas certifies you as a dyer, you know, and uh, what a, what a joke. I mean, the, I walk in still, I mean, I walk, not still, I'm sure I will for a long time, but I walk in like some years ago, I walked into, I was called to the woman's bedside who was a lawyer. She was dying of cancer um, of the brain. She had three young children. Um, and I arrived on Christmas Day, uh, freeway driving, came in. Family treats me like uh, Santa Claus has just arrived. He's come, you know, and they're because they don't know what to do about this situation about their mother. And I'm shipped upstairs. I don't even have my coat off. My hands are still cold. And I walk into this room and there's this woman, this beautiful woman lying on the bed. And I go and I sit down and I'm so speedy from the freeway, I begin becoming Mr. Helpful. You know, I'm going to help you get through death. And it takes me a little while to slow down to look into her eyes to find out she's way beyond that. She's just waiting for me to finish with all my bullshit so we can be together. And it took me a while to get off it, you know, and I really see that working with people that are close to death straightens you up very quickly, very quickly, especially if you have a taste for truth, if you have a taste for the spirit, you know the truth and the spirit are intimately linked. And as I say, you don't lay it on somebody who doesn't want to hear it. If somebody doesn't want to know they're dying, you don't go and say, hey, you know, you know, you're about to die. But if somebody says, am I dying? And you think they are, I think it would be useful to share it with them because it's a great opener for conversation. <laughs> hmm. The question was asked, a friend of mine died without our having a chance to speak of our love for one another. What can I do to get over the pain of that? 
I think all of the words are just fingers pointing at the moon. If she was your best friend, you and she tasted a quality of love together. And if she said to you, I love you, you'd cling to the words, but they'd end up being just an old butterfly in your collection. What you have is that in the silence, both of you were there together. And you have, in a way, a living love that didn't reduce itself to words in a strange way. It wasn't the not, she wasn't busy not saying things. You just there together in silence. It's, it's your mind that flickers. We didn't say all those things. That's the creation of the mind. All you were was there was you and your best friend hanging out through the process of her transition. And you both were there. You both heard what, what is, is, what was, was. I mean, it's still there. It's still there. And I think that if you sit down and light a candle and talk to her, as I suggested you do last time, but you were busy talking and you weren't listening to the answers. Because you keep thinking you want, you know, I mean, if you just listen, you would hear, feel your way into this other being and say what you intuit she would be saying to you. And let that relationship just keep working its way through until you come back into the silence without the dis-ease you're having now. Because the silence and the friendship and the love are very intimate spaces. The only thing that's keeping it from being fulfilling to you is the model you have in your head that something wasn't said. And that's what to work with. The question was asked, if I'm with someone who's dying, what do you think I should say to them at the last moments before they leave their body? Well, I mean, I wasn't with Maharaji, who's the most important being in my life. I wasn't with him when he died. They threw me out, and I wasn't even around anywhere near there. And for a while, I was kind of angry and pissed off at him. And then, then I realized that all that was my attachment to his form, and that behind it, the love was really strong. And, I mean, some people, when they're dying, talk to me, and they say, I want a glass of water, or, you know, or I think I'm not going to die, and then they die, or, you know, I mean, a whole, all kinds of stuff. Times the uh, with um, AIDS, it goes across the brain barrier, and there is a lot of stuff to be said that has to be dealt with. Um, I use the examples where people say things to me, because those are the ones that are you say in lectures where you talk. But uh, I would say that most of the communication in the process of dying is silent. It's a hand. It's the way a glass of water is offered. It's a look. It's a, a, the tone of voice when you say, would you lower the shade? I mean, it's a thousand, a thousand things. It's a thousand things. I mean, I remember the intimacy of taking my father to the toilet and just the intimacy between us. And there were no words because he wouldn't have been able to handle any words in that situation. Five years ago, he lost his best friend to suicide and he's had a lot of discomfort over the years about that guilt because he never anticipated he and his friend didn't open up to him about it is that the right question well to have guilt because you are who you are seems kind of dysfunctional so the first thing i do is let that one go it doesn't get you anywhere Guilt really doesn't pay the bills, it doesn't make you happy, it doesn't bring your friend back, it doesn't do anything, it just keeps feeding on itself. You were who you were, and you did what you did, and he did what he did, and that's the way it is. So the carrying of the, you know, oh, I did something terrible, I wasn't enough for him, I, that's only taking a lineage of what he can leave you and turning it into something dark for yourself. Yeah. So... What lineage, what has he left you? What has your friend left you? What your friends left you is the love that you two experienced as deep friends. And that quality, if, you, if that's strong enough, if you can find that place where that's a living truth, you will then all of the phenomena around his life and death will just be like little flies around the flame. They won't be the flame. 
and the question of how he died or how he lived or whether you talked or whether you didn't become just the these little things around it. They're no longer the essence of it. The essence isn't that he died by suicide. The essence isn't other than the fact that you two made a real connection at a deep level, because otherwise this wouldn't be a question for you. That's what to focus on. And as far as suicide, in, in some ways you could say all death is suicide. It all involves the mind and the body together. You can say that it was uh, in the nature of his curriculum that he finished the work he had to do on earth and he left. Uh, I mean, I live in the world where there are no errors. So uh, I don't think he could have died a minute before he died or a minute after. So I'm really quite relaxed about things. I, when somebody says to me, should I commit suicide? I say a human birth's a precious thing. Hang in as long as you can and do as much work as you can. But when somebody says, I am going to commit suicide, are you opposed? I say, I encourage you to do what you need to do. You live your life the way you need to do it. I don't feel I can impose my will on your consciousness. Okay. So you don't know what the whole karmic predicament is of your friend, of what led to that moment. Yeah. I, um, I think I can tell the story briefly. It's a long story, and I don't really, it's, most of you have heard it, so I don't keep wanting to tell long stories all over again. I'll give you the quick version. Um, 1969, uh, um, I'm back from India. Uh, I'm living in a cabin up on my father's land in New Hampshire. Uh, a kid comes to see me from the Lower East Side of New York, and he says he wants to study yoga with me. He's got a girlfriend in New York, and uh, he's, he's from family that uh, uh, escaped from Russia, a scientist family. Um, so he's, and they're, reason, they're quite wealthy, actually, and he's going to stay at their summer place up on the, nearby on Lake Winnipesaukee, and he's going to come and see me once a week and study yoga. So, fine. He comes, and two months later, by the end of the summer, he knows more yoga than I do, and he's doing it better than I do. So by the fall, I say to him, look, don't waste your time with me. You need a real teacher now. And I suggest who he can go to study with. He says, no. He says, I think I got the fundamentals. I'm going to go into a cave in my parents' home in Arizona, and I'm going to practice all winter, fast, be a yogi. And he was feeling, he looked like a yogi. He was feeling like a yogi. Must be a yogi. <laughs> so he went, he says, as long as I can fly to see you once a month, so once a month, wherever I was, he'd fly to see me. And he was getting more yogi-ish all the time. And I mean, it was, it was, he was very deep and beautiful energy and light, a lot of light. Then I didn't see him in February and I didn't see him in March. Then in April, I got a letter from his mother saying, uh, my son entered Maha Samadhi, meaning he entered into the great state of samadhi that saints go into when they become free. In other words, he got enlightened at death. In other words, he died. Strange way for mother to tell me this. This is a Russian uh, woman. My son entered Maha Samadhi and um, I'm delighted. I'm thrilled and uh, I want to come and see you. So um, let me think of the sequence. So she came and saw me, and um, she showed me his diary. And on the last page of the diary, scrawled in big letters, was, Dear Mother, I, I, I finished my work. Tell Ramdas I finished my work. I am one with Christ and Maharaji. I'm leaving, but I will be watching over you. Love signed by the Son. She says, he is in Mahasamadhi, isn't he? It's a mother asking, and she's clearly quite hysterical over the death. I mean, she isn't genuinely joyful. She's uh, supposed to be joyful. I said, well, to tell you the truth, I don't know. But I know someone who'll know, which is my guru in India. So why don't you send, send me a picture of your son, and I'll take it with me when I go to India next time, and I'll ask my guru. So she said, fine, and she sent me his high school graduation picture. 
which looked like every other high school graduation picture you'd ever seen, and I put it with my papers to take to India the next fall. The next fall, I went to India, and it was a long time. I didn't see my guru till February or so, and then, you know, by then the picture was just in among stuff, and it wasn't high priority in my mind. And then one day, I was sitting with my guru. Oh, you got to wait. I got to tell you a middle part of the story. As I'm looking at the scrawl, which he's written it, I recognize that scrawl. The scrawl is the scrawl that I would have used when I took a big, heavy dose of acid. And then, right at the peak of the session, I realized I had located the one word that would liberate the entire universe. And I knew I had to write it down because my mind was moving so fast. And so I would stagger on my hands and knees to the table and grab a pen and write, which the next day would turn out to be like the word is, <laughs> or be, or something like that. And I thought this really looks like acid writing to me, but I don't know. So after the mother left, this is now before I went to India the next fall. Two weeks later, his brother came and he said, "I have to tell somebody." He said,、uh, "The day my brother died, I went out to visit him with a friend, and we and."、Uh, This fellow that was doing yoga had had a lot of psychedelic chemicals before. It wasn't new for him, and、uh, the three of us took some acid, and we went swimming together. And in the course of swimming, my brother came over to me with love, and I experienced it as I went into a homosexual panic, and I pushed him away, and he got frightened. You know how peak trips can go bad, and he said. All of you go.、Uh, you two go. I'm going to be by myself. And he went to his cave. And then what he must have done is done some pranayama, some breath stuff, and burst his heart because they found blood from his nose against the wall and so on. So that's in my mind. Aha! See, he didn't. It, this isn't Mahasamadhi. This is a you know a garden variety、um, at bad acid trip that led to you know. Uh, an ego thing in which he broke broke his body, so and he left his body. So that was my、uh, analysis at the end of seeing the brother. Now I'm in India, and I go to I'm with my guru finally, and some one day he's looking at people's pictures and pulling them out of their bags and saying ma pa and all this stuff, and I remember this picture. So I go rushing to my room and I bring back this high school graduation picture. And I just put it on the tucket in front of him on the table he's sitting on, and he's looking at different things. And he suddenly looks down, and his attention captures on the picture, and he says, "He's dead," which is pretty good. I mean, just right there, you know. <laughs> But we'll let that one pass. And he said, "He said he's dead." I said, "Yeah." He said,、um, "He said he died from your medicine," <laughs> meaning the LSD. I said, "Yes, that's what I thought." The tone of my voice had that kind of righteous judging, and he went, and this is all across English, Hindi, all this stuff, and he yelled, "Nay!" And then he did the most bizarre thing. He said, "He finished his work. He wanted you to know that he is one with Christ. He is watching over." He recited word for word what the diary was, and he said, "No, he finished his work," and he saw that I distrusted the way he exited. I got so preoccupied with how he left. I mean, it's interesting that when you're done, you leave. How you leave is how you leave. It could be a truck. It could be sitting down in meditation. It could be, you know, who? It's your karma. It's the karma of the body and the what's left over the personality. Who left? Interesting story. That's the best I can do for you. She said. <laughs> She said, five years ago, I had a near-death experience, and she said, the first thing I want to know is why people come back, and that led to the second one, in which she said that coming back, she found that she had a stronger aversion to the world of form than she had even before the experience, and then the third component was that she said she was finding that she was falling in love with everybody, in most inappropriate ways. And it's made a complete screwed-up mess of her life, and she feels the door open too fast, and she got too big a dose too quickly. Is that a fair statement of all? Huh? Okay.
I can't hear. I mean, as you were telling me, I was trying to say, is she bragging or complaining? I couldn't decide whether, I mean, you are here and here we are. And all that was preparation for this. And you, the question is, why does a person go back? They go back because they go back. Because the, your karmic stuff involves the grace of seeing through the veil and then the interesting component of living with it after you've seen it. See, most people don't see through it till they die. And then the ones that see through it early keep seeing through it you like gently or integrated. There are a lot of people like with drugs in the 60s had the same thing. It opened and they had no way of dealing with what happened and they closed it and then they were scared. They'd go crazy and all that. And some of them did. And then they come through it. And I mean, it goes on years, years and years. And you got to take a long view of life. So you've got to say, did that in the long run change the nature of your whole journey on this incarnation to be bringing you closer and closer to a spiritual truth? Because now, she says, people that used to be her friends aren't the same way, and people that are strangers she's experiencing this love with. And what you experience is you're functioning with the realization of a whole different way of being in the universe. You're seeing people from a different plane of consciousness. It's all different. And what is too fast or too slow? How did you want it? You want it like little bitty you know, teaspoons, which you could make believe nothing had happened. It's a very powerful opening. And uh, most people that have had near-death experiences have had their lives metamorphized in ways similar to the way you have. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.